Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Ko Tanimoto. Ko is a corporate associate in Foley's Los Angeles office. In our discussion, Ko reflects on growing up in Santa Barbara, California, attending the University of California at San Diego for college, and then later, the University of Notre Dame for law school. What's really fun about this conversation is co-detailing what happened between college and law school. For example, he spent three years as a Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia. He also earned his MBA from the University of Massachusetts before attending law school. Co explains exactly why it is that he did those two things and how it is that one thing led to another. And like so many episodes of The Path and the Practice, this conversation has a number of funny stories. Two of my favorites are Co sharing what it was like taking this GMAT in Zambia and him detailing a little bit about what it was like serving as a juror for eight weeks on a murder trial. In addition to this, Co shares about his corporate practice. He also provides great advice to law students about OCI, as well as what they can do in order to ramp up as a junior associate. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Co. Co, welcome to the podcast. Let's just jump right in and have you give your professional introduction. All right, happy to do it. So my name is Ko Tanimoto. I am now a fifth-year associate in the transactions practice group in Foley's LA office, and my practice generally focuses on representing public and private companies in the upper middle market on mergers and acquisitions, security law related matters. So that's kind of along the lines of like debt and equity offerings and disclosure requirements, joint ventures and kind of general corporate matters. Prior to law school, I actually spent three years in the Peace Corps in the sub-Saharan African country of Zambia. So the first two years, I was living in a rural African village, kind of in the Malawi and Mozambique border, working with community and government-based schools. And then my third year, I was in the capital city of Lusaka, while working with a sports NGO that they use sports to target at-risk kids. And then after Peace Corps, I went to grad school, got my MBA and a master's in sport management. And it was during that time when I decided to go to law school, had a year in between, and then went to Notre Dame. As a 2L summer, I was a summer associate in our Milwaukee office, and I actually started the first couple of years in our Milwaukee office, and then I transferred to the LA office a couple of years ago and got to, got to where I am right now. And now we're here, and you just gave your yep. whole life story in about 90 yep. seconds. So I'm good. We're just going to end the show at that end. That's yep. code. That's code. <laughs> Let's unpack it a bit. I love that you gave me a roadmap because I actually didn't realize that you started in Milwaukee part, but let's take it back. So where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I was born actually in LA. So I am kind of where I started. And I went to elementary school for first up until like the second grade, but I really grew up for the most part in Santa Barbara. My dad teaches at UCSB. So I grew up there. I spent actually one year in the fifth grade in Tokyo, in Japan, at like an all boys international school. Our family all moved there. So actually one year was in Japan, but for the most part, I would say whenever people always ask me, I'm from 
Santa Barbara area. All right. And so you're talking to like this true Midwesterner who, yeah, I've been to yep. California. <laughs> I've been to LA. So I apologize for those who are from California if this gets painful for them. But how far is Santa Barbara from LA? It's about hour and a half or so along the coast up the 101. So it's not too far. I can, now that I'm back kind of closer to home, I can go home a lot more frequently. So it's, it's been good. And so what were you like as a kid? And I don't know if this will get into the time you spent, you know, abroad in fifth grade, but I've asked a lot of people this. Let me ask you, Yeah. what was little Co like, you know, if I found <laughs> you in like middle school, what were you into? <laughs> Growing up, I just loved playing sports and kind of it, it's trickled all along. And so. And which sports? So I started playing t-ball, I think a year when I was about four years old and I played soccer. But actually around, like if you said middle school, I was part of that time where roller hockey was big in Southern California. It was starting to grow. So I used to play from about third, fourth grade. I played in sixth grade. I think I played in middle school. But And during that one year when I was in Japan, I actually played ice hockey. But then once I got to high school, I kind of moved away. I actually played basketball. So Okay. So that's a lot of different sports. It's funny you should yeah. say that. So my seven-year-old plays hockey, and then my husband has played hockey ever since he was about six. And because of the pandemic, and I think this is accurate to say, because of the pandemic, we all bought rollerblades or roller skates. <laughs> and the boys in my household they won't be caught dead in roller skates. So I got some yeah. roller skates. They got <laughs> hockey roller blades. Like, so they blades, don't have yeah. a, yeah, they don't have a toe. The break, even, that, yeah, no the break, break in the back. Oh, no or, even, or even the back. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah so um, that's funny because you said that. And part of me was like, oh, I can totally relate. Well, no, I can't. It just means I have people in my house who play hockey and we own roller blades. Yeah. So I feel like I yeah. totally understand what you're talking about. I, I haven't put in my ridden roller blades in a really long time, but I, I think I still, my parents still have them somewhere. <laughs> well, okay. And then tell me about high school. That's, but it's just, I'm really appreciative that you shared that. So you said basketball. So high school. Yeah. What are your thoughts, you know, just taking you back a ways, what are your thoughts on life? You know, thinking, what do I want to be when I grow up? I'm guessing it wasn't a lawyer, but you tell me. No, I mean, we'll get to this, but being a lawyer was not even on the radar. I mean, growing up, it was more kind of more science and math based. And actually, so <laughs> my first language is actually Japanese. So growing up speaking at home with my parents, that's what I speak. And so when I go to like a new school, the question was like, what's your first language? And we always put like Japanese and I get placed in ESL. Mm-hmm. And, and so I remember going for like the first day and then for after the first day, you're like, okay, no, you can go back. Kind of stuff. <laughs> They're like, but, why are you here? In this but class? just because that, like I was always just science. based. So I thought even in high school, I took kind of like AP physics. So I thought I was just going to go down the science path. And I eventually went down that in my undergrads in biology. And so... I really didn't know long-term what I would do. I mean, kind of one of those like, oh, it's probably be science. Maybe I'll go to like med school. But it was one of those like, I didn't know. It's definitely not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I have to ask that question because and I say this every episode, but we're getting more law students listening. And even some people are like passing it along to like people that are in college or family members that are younger. And I think it's so powerful to hear someone say, I don't know. You know, obviously I placed my bets. Here's what my interests were. And that's not to say that we shouldn't try when we're 16, 17, 18 to figure out what we want to do for the rest of our lives. But a lot of people don't know. And I was actually one of those weird people who did know, but obviously I still changed my mind given that I don't practice anymore. So what was the process for you when it came to college? Where did you go and how did you decide where to go? So I went to UC San Diego, which about two hours or so south from LA and about, so it ends up being like three and a half, four hours from home. San Diego is just kind of a bigger Santa Barbara. I wanted to get somewhere, a bigger city. I mean, the UC system just kind of made sense at the time. It's a public school and like it's such a great education, which is 
it just financially it just made that sense mm-hmm. to go there at the time as i said like i was a biology i thought I, that's the route i want to go it was a good program there i thought okay that seems like a good fit so that's what i did and was there i actually studied abroad my entire junior year <laughs> and that's i think kind of and then it just kind of took me down this weird path to go to law school <laughs> interesting all right let me break this up a little bit but you're at first you're thinking biology Yep. Did you have an idea of what you thought you would do with the biology degree? I thought maybe, you know, like as you go in, everyone's like a freshman bio major. It's like, oh, maybe a lot of them were like, I want to go to med school. Mm-hmm. I was in those classes and there's a lot of you know classmates like that. Initially, I thought that, but I, I knew pretty quickly. It's like, that's probably not, not for what you. I wanted to do. To be honest, I didn't know what I want to do. Like with a bio major, it's like, well, I guess I could just work in, in a lab, but and I took live classes and like I couldn't see myself just pipetting all day for the rest of my life. Like, <laughs> And so, I mean, the reason why it was one of those, like, oh, it's a bio major. And to be completely honest, like I applied to go abroad okay. as a bio major and had all my classes lined up to take that because it would transfer over. I didn't really know what, if I wanted to switch majors, I would have to redo that. But I just didn't have anything that I wanted to, to go into. Okay. And so for me, it was one of those, like, I actually rather go abroad, like my entire junior year. I, it's not like I'm a, I'm unhappy with, but I just don't know yeah, what I want. And yeah, so, fine. and it's going to do that. So where did you go abroad? So I was in England. It's in Brighton. So it's about two hours South of London, which is awesome. And then I was there when I was 20. So in the, you don't have to worry about the whole 21 age over there. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. And then, so you get to, I mean, I got to travel a lot quite a bit like that entire year I didn't come home so for like winter break I traveled for a month spring break I traveled for a wow. month and then like the end of the year my friend came out and then traveled for a month and so it was just you got that experience and that whole actual studying abroad and it was a, a big thing is like I said I, I didn't speak kind of the foreign language in the sense of being one of the if I wanted to study in Spain or I had a really mm-hmm. good friend who I visited or, or something like that I wanted to go into English speaking country so England Brighton worked out and yeah. And it sounds like that changed your perspective. I'll share that I studied abroad for one semester in Rome and then for a summer in London. I actually met my husband while studying abroad. You know, you go abroad, you meet a guy from Michigan. <laughs> so, <Yeah. that's>, <laughs> yeah. so I have a special place in my heart for London. But you mentioned earlier, it sounds like studying abroad changed your perspective a bit. Did you end up, well, it doesn't sound like you changed your major, but it sounds like you maybe had second thoughts about your plans after studying abroad. Elaborate on that. I mean, when I came back, it was one of those, like I came back for senior year. I still really didn't know what I wanted to do. I remember though, when I was a sophomore, my RA, I lived on like at a kind of was on campus apartments, was like, oh, I'm going to, he's going to be a Peace Corps volunteer and I, in, in some Central American country. I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. But didn't okay. really register. Yeah. But when I came back that fall, I started really thinking about, okay, like it's senior year. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And during that fall, I kind of went and kind of talked to people with all these information sessions and then kind of decided I'm going to do this. It was a really long process for, for one reason. I was going to say, I've heard this before. Tell me a little bit more about it, but I've, I've, I've heard a little bit about this. Say more. Yeah. So I started in the fall of my senior year. It's like kind of the process. And I think I submitted my application probably like around like October of my senior year. And then there's like multiple rounds of processing, like the initial application, you have meeting or like interviews and that sort. And at a certain point, you get kind of a region, really like the country invites you as opposed to you saying, I want to go here. You can say like, is there a region you don't want to go to? Do you have a preference? 
Now, I actually said, I don't want to go to Africa, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I specifically <laughs> said, I didn't want that. And I went through the process and actually like I graduated and I still didn't have the f- actual like invitation to country. And so I remember that summer, it's like, okay, well, I have a lease through San Diego for up until like September. Hopefully, like the idea was like, I'd be able to leave in September, but I still didn't get an invitation. And I didn't get it until October. I actually, so I had to move home for a couple months because I was in kind of limbo. Yeah. Well, so I just want to reflect one thing about that. So you graduate in May and at that point, everyone's kind of like, has some plans. Yeah. Some people are going to grad school and maybe some people have jobs and they're like, oh, what are you going to do? And you're like, I think I'm going to go to the Peace Corps, but I'm still waiting to hear. Yeah. And then like you said, your lease is up and you're like, I'm going to go ahead <laughs> and move home because I hope to hear from the Peace Corps. Is that what happened? Yeah. I mean, I, I was kind of like initially accepted. I just didn't have that final like specific country invitation. Like this is the program you're going to. You've been accepted. Yeah. Got it. And okay. so I was waiting and I, I remember hearing it just got delayed. And then I didn't get it till that October. So it was like a month or so after I moved back. So I was like, I decided I had to move back. I remember I got it in the mail and I looked at like Zambia. I was like, where is that? Like, I have no idea. So I remember going to my parents and they had one of those, like, it's not like a, like this picture book of all these countries. And then it's like, I opened it up to Z and there's this big picture of like a hippo of like, it's like each country at it and it's like representative and just like, a yeah. nation, and it was like, yeah, I remember um, seeing that at that moment. Yeah. Like it was like instantly like, yes, I like, I'm going. Okay. <laughs> going to Zambia. And then what's the timing like on that? Like, do they tell you and you're going there and. Yeah. So it was a January process. So I had, I had a couple more months. So I actually took the GREs thinking that it's kind of in between. Oh. I might as well have that score locked in. And so I did that in, I took that in December and then I had another month and I flew out in January and then that all thing happened. <laughs> okay. And we're getting back to the Peace Corps because I want to hear fair a fair amount about that. But tell me about the thought process behind the GRE. Because as we all know, that's not the test you take to go to law school. No. <laughs> so what was the thought process of let me get a GRE score because I might want to go to graduate school? Yeah, but I had no idea what I wanted to, to be honest. It was just okay. kind of a default okay. of, I was signing it for two years. And so it's like, okay, if that's, I could start this process over there, I wouldn't have to take another standardized test, which I actually did eventually. And that was an ordeal. Yes, you <laughs> did. We know that you did. And we'll get there. No, no it was the GMAT. I had to take for business school. Oh, you also, and oh, I took that. You're right. You did go to business school. I, and that was. You took all of yeah. the big tests for grad school. That's funny. So, but th- that was the whole thought process. Like, okay, I'll just have that just so I have, so I don't have to take any, so and I can just apply. Don't know what, but I had a couple months. It's like, let's just do it. So I might as well do it. Okay. And I know that we can't possibly yeah. cover all three years yeah. in Zambia because we won't yeah. talk about, you yeah. know, fully <laughs> or your practice or any of that or law school. But I do want you to tell me a little bit more. So you go to Zambia and you did preview for us. You mentioned the, you know, kind of major things you did. I would love to just get a sense of what that was like. You get on a plane, you fly to Zambia, you get off the plane. Yeah. And then what? And you have about like nine weeks of training. So it's, it's kind of intensive language training. And then also have like half, half the day's language training and half of it's kind of what they call technical training, but like the program that you'd be placed in. So I was in the education program. So in the morning was language with this group of four others, I think. And then the afternoon was kind of the bigger program group, which is about, I think about 20 of us. Okay. And then afterwards you get dispersed to different areas of the country after nine weeks. And then you just kind of get thrown out in your own village. And it's kind of like, see you in three months, guys. Wow. <laughs> and... Yeah, I mean, I lived like what you imagine, like 
mud brick home, grass thatch roof, no running water, no electricity. I had to, they gave us like a bike, like a, a trek mountain bike. And it's kind of like, all right, go figure out what they want to do, figure out what the community wants and kind of identify. And then here it is. Oh, <laughs> But so you said the initial commitment was two years earlier. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you did three years, but it sounds like eventually you adjusted and you enjoyed it. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, it's weird Like you, I mean, you're a volunteer, so you make a couple hundred dollars in living allowance kind of thing. I mean, I was 22 years old living kind of in the middle of nowhere by myself. Like This is kind of what I wanted. And this is exactly what I signed up for. I don't know if I could do it right now, but it was just at the time, just, kind of exactly what I wanted to do and experience and live and not working in a lab, which I thought at the time was kind of my alternative. Wow. I think you mentioned it earlier. And also, like, I have your bio up, so if you didn't mention it. So while you were there, you worked in schools, but you also worked on an NGO that was focused on sports. I would love if you could say just like a little bit about each, and then I promise listeners we will keep it, we'll, we'll move on in your story, but I am curious. So my first two years was just working with school. And then I extended for a third year as a volunteer. So I moved to the, so it was completely different. I lived in like the capital city. I actually had like electricity, take a shower every day instead of a bucket bath. But I worked half the time in the office setting, kind of it as an NGO. So they worked with what they call like orphan and vulnerable children. In Zambia, there's a lot of orphans just because of AIDS and for a multitude of different kind of diseases that are out there. So you have a lot of kids living in street or kind of in an orphanage. So what they did was my organization would, they set up sports leagues throughout the capital city and then they also would house these kids. But part of that is you have to go to school. So my part was actually like, there's the office part of it. And then the afternoon I'd actually go out to one of the sites I'd like ride my bike out and then like coach basketball and baseball. And so I was actually coaching baseball there for a year. It was that. And then <laughs> it's very different. You know. I can only imagine. I have not had an experience that's the equivalent. It is great because you talked earlier about the interest in sports, playing a lot of sports, and then that you're getting to coach kids while you were there. So what was the transition back like? Eventually it was, okay, my additional one-year contract is up. I'm heading back to the States. So then what happens? And so that's when I was like, okay, I think I want to work in sport. Like this is what I'm interested in. And so I started looking up all these sport management programs. And so I found UMass is one of the best programs. And so that's what I decided to do. Problem is, I told you, like, I had to take the GMAT while I was in the, I, I had the GRE, but they required the GMAT. So actually, it was great to keep it short, but like the power went out when I was taking the GMAT and we had to go to the generator. And I thought all my scores were lost and you find out the score immediately. Yeah. This is in Zambia. Yeah. I was in a room by myself taking it on a computer and the power goes out and I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I, like, what's happening to my score? And then the guy was like, no, it's fine. The generator, will co- we can switch the generator. But it's like, do I have to redo like the writing part? Like, like I told you, like I'm not a writer and I thought I did pretty well. And like, I, I felt good. Mm-hmm. Look, like, and you find out the score immediately. And I remember the second part of it after the power came out, like the generator came out and actually the generator run, ran out of fuel. So then we had to switch to regular electric. So the power went out again. And so I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking like, how am I going to rationalize this like bad score that I'm going to pull and like my admission essay and like in my mind. And then you find out the score immediately. And it's like, I did so much better than I was testing at. I was like, I, this can't be right at all. Oh my gosh, okay, good. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing because I think for all of us or those listening to this who are about to take the LSAT or have taken the LSAT or other standardized tests, to have to explain a score as, but I was in Zambia and the power went out Twice. and then the generator. <laughs> so luckily you didn't have to do that because the score was good, but I just, that's 
actually really funny. <laughs> so, so no, but like to say, I remember thinking, I was like, I think it was like math portion. It was like, I'm going to do terrible. Like I'm going to get a bad score. Like, how am I going to like rationalize this score in my, in my mind of like writing my essay frame? But then I'll immediately it was like, they can't be right. And then a few months okay. and you find out the actual course, like, I guess it was right. So, <laughs> so yeah, it worked out good enough where I got to go to the school I wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. I went to UMass and between my first and second year, I was interning like major league baseball in Tokyo. So that was That's actually, really my parents cool. actually were living there for that year. It just happened. So oh. it was great. But then my second year is where I kind of was training. Like I was as part of my graduate assistantship, I was a TA for a sports law professor. And it was like, okay, I didn't think it was something like, it was like, I mean, it's, it's part of your GA, so it's kind of like, oh, you get your tuition paid, so it's awesome. And it was, it was mm-hmm. a very yeah, well-renowned professor, so it's like, okay. You go through that semester, and it starts thinking, like, maybe this, I don't know exactly, especially in the sports as well, like, what is it that I want to do? And then I remember during that winter break before the beginning of the spring semester, my professor emailed me. He's like, hey, he, so he's pre-renowned. He's like, I'm doing salary arbitration for a major league baseball team. Would you be interested in, like, helping me out? Obviously, it was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure, let's do it. <laughs> so I came back, and for the, before, like, I came back actually a little bit earlier, I think, before school started, and then started working with them. And it was, I mean, it, it is the whole salary arbitration process for a team of creating argument on why this player does not deserve a certain number, like a certain score. And you go, it's a very quirky process, but there is kind of a legal process Mm -hmm. to it in a sense. And so kind of seeing that, it was like, okay, maybe it kind of piqued an interest. I will say I took a sports law class the prior, like I had just part of my um, graduate course. Looking back, it's only like a 20 page paper, but I remember I had to do it during winter break. I remember when I submitted it, and this was like a week or so before my professor emailed me, I remember saying to myself like, I'm done. I'm never going to law school. I finished oh this paper. That's hysterical. Uh, where you're like, well, there, here's one thing I know I'll literally never yeah. do. <laughs> I was like, I did it. And I was like, thank goodness. Like, and I did I ended up getting like a really good score on it. Yeah. So eventually it was like, okay, so maybe I am like, I'm not so bad at this. And then have this assistant or at least this going through the salary. Yeah. You have that experience. So that plants a seed. Right. And it's so funny on these shows because I mean, spoiler alert, we know you did go to law school, <laughs> yeah. but there's still this part of me right now that's like, wait, how? So what happened? What? Yeah. Then what happened? What caused you to finally decide I'm going to apply to law school? And so I was in the final semester of my grad program. And so you go through and I remember like interviewing I think I went to like New York to interview with like one of the professional sports league, just doing some digital marketing stuff, but it was stuff that mm-hmm. like, so that was pretty much my option. Or, I mean, throughout the rest of that semester, I was working with my professor and it's like, if I were to play the really long game, I have not taken the LSAT yet. So I can't start this fall. I would need mm-hmm. to in a sense, sit out another year to do that. But I remember when I decided, like I went through even actually I graduated and I was still going through the interview process of not being same thing actually like right after undergrad of like, what is it that I'm going to do? Am I going to continue kind of searching for a job of what, mm-hmm. or do I kind of go all in and say, no, I'm going to take the LSATs. I'm going to go through this application cycle. Ultimately, that's what I decided to do. So I actually went back to Santa Barbara. I was working part-time for my professor, took the LSAT, applied, went through application. Interesting story. It's like something I probably wouldn't be able to do at this point. But during that one year, 
I actually served as a juror on like a two-month murder trial, like a multi Wow, that's amazing. And so it was something that like I probably – they wouldn't pick me now. But at the time, mm-hmm. I actually like – it worked out perfectly. I remember like I got the summons like I wonder if it's some like really important like case. And so like I went in and then the first day and they're like, this is a murder trial. And then I went through, it was like a five day like vaudeer. So I was sitting through four of them and just been like, all these people are like, I can't do this. I can't. And I, for me, I'm like, I mean, I could do it. I got it. time. Yeah. You're like, okay. I mean, I got like, I'm flexible. Like I can work at night. I didn't really have a reason to be like, I can't do it. And I ended up being juror number two. And so it was like almost like a two month trial. And then I was. That's amazing. So I'm the <laughs> former litigator in me, because litigators, like when you get called for jury duty, you're like, I hope they pick me because to get that perspective yeah. is amazing. And not too long ago, I actually got called for jury duty and I made it through, I got to actually go to voir dire because in the yeah. past I've been dismissed before that even happened. And yeah, they find out that I'm a lawyer, yeah. even though I don't practice, I'm off immediately. Yeah. But even just that, I was like, that was so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <I got> to- <laughs> no, it was, I thought for sure, like when I tell them like, oh, I want to be a lawyer, I was like, that would be just like, get out of here kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah. I ended up, I was one of the last people. So it was like kind of slid. I was, I think it was the second to last person. And then they both sides were like, all right, we're good with the panel. That is so interesting. There's so many questions I would love to ask you about that, but I'm not. Yeah. We're going to keep going. Yeah. I'm not. I'm, it's taking a lot. I'm, I'm pulling it back. So you do that. You're working part-time. You're gearing up to apply to law school. What's the law school application process like for you? Where do you end up going? So I applied to a bunch of schools because being in the Peace Corps is like they waive application fees. So it's like, well, might as well, I guess. And yeah. so I ended up applying to a ton of schools. I think Notre Dame was the first school I got into. I, and it was like growing up, I was just, I was from California, but I mean, you watch Notre Dame football and it's kind of like the mistake yeah. and you're just kind of like, okay, I mean, mm-hmm. that's why I decided to apply. Kind of the issue with Notre Dame is trying to get people to come to South Bend to just visit the campus because it's middle mm-hmm. of nowhere. So they gave me, I don't know, a couple hundred like for my flight and it ended up being like, she was like, all right, well, let's go check this out. And I remember I went in April. It was coming from like Santa Barbara in like 70 degree weather in April. And it was that weekend was miserable. It was cold. It was mm-hmm. like snowing. It might've even been hay. Like, I don't know what it was, but, but like I went there and for some reason it's like, I'm going to come here. <laughs> You're like, I like this place. <laughs> it's a beautiful camp. And it's just, there's not much in in South Bend, but like when I went to camp, it was it just kind of was like I'm gonna go here. Kind of it was, it was that moment. I must have driven to a few other schools, but I didn't fly out to anywhere else. It was yep. one of those like I'm gonna go to Notre Dame, and that's kind of what I'm doing. Notre Dame had you, so you did. Yep. And by then, and I'm fast forwarding a little, but. Yep. You're at Notre Dame. And what I love, by the way, tracing the development of your thought process in terms of your professional path, I just get a lot of, I drive a lot of joy out of this. But now you're in law school and I have two main questions, which is what's that adjustment like for you? And now what were you thinking you were going to focus on or like, what did you want to do with a legal degree? So I knew, and people always ask me this, it was like, how did you decide the practice? I kind of knew right off the bat, even before it's like, I don't, just my personality, I didn't want to do litigation. Despite that two-month trial you'd been a part of? <laughs> well, I mean, like after that, being the jury was actually helpful in the sense that, A, I don't want to do criminal law, and I didn't want to do litigation. But for me, not having, growing up without any family members who are lawyers, like I just don't, all you see is like, all you do is go to court. It's kind of what you think yep. about. But that having done the, with my grad assistant, like that was like, okay, there's more to actual legal practice than just going to court is I think what really opened my eyes. But I knew probably wanted to do some transaction or like corporate 
related work. I didn't really know what that really meant, to be completely honest, because no one really, especially when you go into law school. Exactly. But that's kind of what I had in mind. In terms of like the transition, if I had gone through straight out, of, like I don't think, to be honest, like I don't think I would have had the discipline. It is a mm. commitment. That's a good point. Yeah. And I'm actually impressed by all these people who go straight through because if I like 22 year, year old co who went to Peace Corps would not have been able to handle one L a year. It's just the requirements of like, you have to be dedicated to study like every day, be prepped for cold mm-hmm. calls. And that I was lucky in the sense that A, I didn't come straight through. I had gone through Peace Corps, but also going through grad school, which I think was very helpful in terms of transitioning to law school. So it definitely was not easy at all. Let me tell you, like, it was still really hard. It's interesting, but you had like, I'm hearing maturity and I'm hearing that you just had time to figure out more that you wouldn't have had. You don't think you would have had if you'd gone straight through. And also the fact that I had waited so long and I really made a conscious decision, like, I want to go to law school. I'm willing to and like wait in a sense, like a year. I also knew kind of like how the legal market hired is different than anywhere else in the sense that if you want to work at a big law firm, your first year grades matter. Yep. First year matters. Not many people know that. Like I, even though I didn't have any lawyer fame, like I did as part of the process, like understood how this game was being played. Um, mm-hmm. Did you research? How, yep. In my mind, it's like, okay, if I want to work in the long term at the time, it's like, if I want to go to like a big law firm, I have to make sure I have the grades my first year and do well enough to go through that because this, whatever this, what they call on-campus interview, which I had no idea what mm-hmm. it was. <laughs> whatever what that did. is. <laughs> Apparently, like all, at that time, all you know is your first year grades. And I was hoping like, well, I have like, I mean, I have other backgrounds and so maybe that'll like give me a bit of a push. Mm-hmm. But like at the same time, I knew like, I mean, you really have to like be sacrificed, like dedicate yourself. And luckily, like I said, like I wasn't straight out of undergrad and I was able to at least do that. <laughs> Yeah. So it works out for you. And you mentioned this before about summering it fully, but it sounds like, so you figure out law school, you did do well enough that first year you get to OCI and is OCI how you learn about Foley and Lardner? And if not, how? To specifically, yes, I had heard done, like you said, like certain, like in my mind, if I want to work at like a big law firm that kind of in the sense of like this dream of doing corporate work that's sport, there's a few firms that are known to do that. And Foley had definitely had that reputation. That was, I think, through my OCA, I think it was like kind of like the product. I think I might have put it as number one. Mm-hmm. But I will say that it's like I, the way I got hired. So I had never been to Wisconsin before my callback interview. And I was take a step back. Like when I was a 1L, whatever it is for your 1L summer, like I want to get hired anywhere. If I could get paid, that's great. And so you, I interviewed at some like law firms in like Indianapolis and then also like in Chicago. But the Indianapolis one, I remember going down there and getting grilled about like why indie and it was just a completely fair question but like i had zero ties what are your ties especially for for secondary smaller market like that is a legitimate question that's being asked and so to be i wasn't really as prepared as i thought i should mean as i should have been because i didn't get that job (laughs) but going into oci i was like okay i want to work if i want there's having gone through that and now it's like okay but really i knew like that 2l summer is really the main that big bite of the apple in the sense of trying to get a get a big law job and so i went and then I was like prepping myself. Go, the OCI is just, it's its such, I felt like it was just a crapshoot. It's intense too. It's in our law school study rooms. And so you jump from one study room, there's one firm, and then you like talk to them 20 minutes and then like suddenly you got to jump to the next room. And then you're like, mm-hmm. it's a big blur. I specifically remember fully one though, is like, I remember walking in, you know, the typical question looks like, which offices are you interested in? And for me, it's like, okay, well, I'm from, at the time it's like, well, 
want to go to probably like California, I'd be open to Chicago, but I'm also open to having no members. Like I knew Milwaukee, their headquarters is in Milwaukee. And I knew that kind of their bigger corporate practice, their kind of main manager is in Milwaukee. So I remember it's like, and I'd be open to Milwaukee. And I just remember at the time, my interviewer just put like Milwaukee and then like circled it on my resume. <laughs> and it's like, this is in the blur of it. So I'm like, I don't know what that means. Okay. But then I'm off to like next interview and you're like, yep, that's hysterical that you remember that so vividly. It was like, as soon as I said that and like circled it, I was like, okay, maybe that's, I mean, it could be worse, I guess. So, <laughs> and then had, had the call back. And so I went to, I was asked to, to come up to Milwaukee. I had never been in Wisconsin before. So I drove up the night before, stayed at the Fister Hotel. And then I was nice like, hotel. After, nice yeah, hotel. after having gone through that Indianapolis firm interview was like all right i gotta make sure i'm like ready for this why milwaukee quite i can i can like answer this why fully but like this milwaukee and i was just going back and forth on why i should be hired in milwaukee and i was ready for it and i go through it and i th- there's i mean like five or so attorneys i didn't get a single question of why milwaukee oh. <laughs> and so i'm driving home back to south bend it's like that's either really good or really bad like i don't know what this yes, is that's really funny and you're going through this like stressful OCIC process, but it's like, I don't know, man. Uh, okay. So I guess it's kind of on to the next, but yeah. Well, and I just love that you're talking about that because this is a big issue for law students. And there's a couple yeah. things. One, we're going to, I know I date myself all yeah. the time because fundamentally I'm just, I'm older than I look when it comes to my own process. That was quite some time ago, but now because of COVID, yeah. I think OCI, particularly the screening interviews are likely to remain virtual. So for those yeah. of us who are like, it used to be that you were in person and you would go room to room. Like, yeah. I think that might be gone, but also this is something that law students get a lot. And you know, for the law students listening, you should be able to explain why you want to be in a given city, particularly if it's a place you haven't grown up in. But you're going to have different receptions, whereas some firms really may grill you on it. And some are going to be like, not even one. Okay, you've expressed interest. Yeah, we think this is a great place to live. And if you come here, you'll want to make ties here. So cool. And you just need to be ready for either. <laughs> and so it, that's that's what it was. And it was like, oh, okay. And then Again, the same thing right after my screen. It's like either that's like really good or that's actually very bad. But mm-hmm. it, I mean, I got offered, so it ended up being good. And ultimately, this is where I accepted and then spent my 2L summer in Milwaukee. So, yep. And then you start and you spend, it sounds like a number of years in the Milwaukee office before you were able to move to our LA office. And I would love for you to tell me about, and maybe some of it picks up on your summer associate experience, but you do start. How do you learn to be a corporate associate? Back to the whole, what's your practice? Tell me more about that. I mean, to be honest, like you are prepared so little in law school to be corporate M&A transactional. There's a few classes that were very helpful. Like you take your business association, business organization, which you call it. I took an M&A class. I took securities reg. And there was one kind of transactional law intensive class that was helpful. But for the most part, it doesn't really apply. Like I took evidence, but like I don't come across that. It's really on the job, like once you're there and it's, you know, oftentimes kind of, especially like when you're a junior here, you, you do get decent responsibility. You just kind of get thrown in the deep end. And and I tell people, like, and you learn from the mid-levels, to be honest. You have mm-hmm. other the, the question Wherever you go, and I've told people this, like, wherever office, even if a firm, like, you want to be placed somewhere where you have, like, a competent mid-level associates because those are the ones who are going to work with 
kind of every day. You have partners, but they might sometimes be so busy doing other stuff. But the questions mm-hmm. that you're going to ask in, you're going to have that. And, so th- and that's a big reason, another reason why I wanted to go to a place like a headquartered office like at Foley Milwaukee as opposed to starting somewhere else because they actually had that built in. It would have been a lot tougher if I was, say, the only junior associate in a smaller office and there was no mid-levels and it's just me and the partner. Kind of that learning, I think it would have been a lot more difficult. I was going to say, it's interesting you highlight that because people can start in all sorts yeah. of different office sizes. And we actually, earlier on the podcast as an Arissa associate, out of the Milwaukee office, who actually was like essentially like the only junior associate. Yeah. And she had to figure out how to get the feedback she needed with partners without constantly feeling like she was kind of peppering them with little questions. Yeah. <laughs> so she would schedule time yeah. to be like this. I don't know, Thursdays at noon from noon to one, I will give you all my questions for the yeah. week. But what you said about mid-levels being your resource, I think is really clutch. And a big tip for the law students listening, because there's times where you need to ask the partner, but if you can get that person who's just a couple years ahead of you I mean, to tell yeah. you what's going on, that's great. I mean, some of the questions, you're like, I don't know if this is a dumb question. I don't know if I want to tell, like, let a partner know how dumb I am. Like, I'd rather ask, like, a, a mid-level, another associate who is just a couple, and then I can be like, hey, like, what is this? Like, how do I dress? I mean, to be honest, you, like, you you have your own office. You go through law school, and you have kind of your core group of friends. But when you go to law school, you're, you get your own office, which is nice, but it can be a little isolating. And so you actually have to reach out if you have questions. And oftentimes, you kind of go back to your office, and you sit down, and you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. <laughs> like, you know, you're like, I heard the words. I heard the words that came out of their mouth. <laughs> especially like some of the class, what you learn law, it doesn't necessarily translate to actually apply it in practice, especially as, as a first year associate. You can look on kind of the document system, what other people have, or like, you know, you talk to mid-level and be like, look, I had something similar for this deal, look under this. And then you kind of have to think and try to match that with your current project. But I mean, part of, I think the training that the people talk like what you got was having those first couple years in Milwaukee, is, I think has built me to who I am today. That's so. really helpful. Yeah. Well, and you got a little tactical there, which I think is helpful. So it is find your mid-levels, ask them questions, look for something else that was similar to what you've been asked. Yeah. A friend of mine actually wrote an article for Bloomberg with advice to new associates. And one of the, his tips was, so you get the assignment, likely a partner gave it to you, or maybe a senior associate, go back to your desk, write it down and maybe send it back to the person say, thanks so much, just to confirm I'm going to do X, Y, Z by a date. Because sometimes when it's written back down, it causes you to one, realize what you don't know. And then two, they'll be like, oh, actually, I wanted you to do A and B and not X and Z. But there's so many little things to just getting acclimated as an associate, which is why I think that learning curve is so steep. But as we start to wrap up, and we just still have a few minutes together, tell me more about your practice. So we started with your practice restate it and then tell me a little bit more about what that means for you and sort of your day-to-day capacity. My practice is kind of most focused on M&A, securities law, it's kind of what they call, you know, kind of the upper middle market clients. And so for M&A deals, so I mean, if you, when you have that, it could be from the beginning of say, you get from a client says, we have this letter of intent, we're going to buy a company or, or sell a company, we've, we've entered into it. At this point, my job right now is, okay, the partner is like, okay, we have this letter of intent. We've had this similar deal of like this purchase agreement, but your job is to make this letter of intent into this precedent purchase agreement, but make sure it doesn't conflict. Some of these terms that might be 
unique. You might have some weird earnout provisions or certain indemnifications of certain, or there might not be, uh, you might have some non-competes or exclusivity or whatever it might be, but it's a two, three page letter of intent into some of it could be like a hundred page merger agreement, to be honest. And as part of that, you have your main document, but you also have these ancillary documents. So making sure, okay, you're trying to take what the business folks are bringing to you and putting that into a legal document. Mm-hmm. So that the purchase or whatever's happening can actually occur. Like we've agreed we're going to buy something. I often share with the listeners, yeah, I have, I have a litigation bias. I'm just not as aware of what transactional practice is like, <laughs> even though, you know, I think I know more than average. But I often I'll liken it to say someone's like buying a house. It's one thing when you you know go under contract, we've agreed to buy the house. Yeah. Essentially, they're roughly the equivalent, I guess, of a letter of intent. It's another thing to actually have all the documents drafted, yeah. saying all the terms and conditions or whatever. Oh, and by the way, the real estate lawyers out there are cringing as I say this because <laughs> now it's different because it's real estate. But I just think that's so important that you're breaking that down because, like you said, when you're in law school, even though you can take certain classes, it is hard to get exposed to corporate transactional practice. So I think it's nice for someone to just hear like, you know, this is what I do as, you know, a fifth year associate with a M&A or a securities practice. So I, I really appreciate you expanding on that. And it helps me learn too. So let's not, let's not kid ourselves. I've learned it too. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, like it's, when you start off, you really do get a lot as a junior associate, you get very discreet. Like I need you to draft some, like a certificate or smaller documents. And it's harder to, and people, and you always, people tell you like, you need to look at the bigger picture of this deal. And that's hard when you're like, we don't have that training as a law school. You don't know what it is. You don't know yet. And you're kind of thrown in there and you kind of get the sub part, but you don't understand. I mean, you get the trees, you don't get the forest, like kind of, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're completely Yeah, it's all lost. trees. There's no forest. It's all single trees. <laughs> and so you're like, I don't know how this document plays into this other, this overall transaction. And it's just kind of deal after deal. Like you kind of, the more you do it, the more you kind of figure out like, okay, so this is why this document serves, I mean, as you said, like every document should serve a purpose. Like you're not just creating anything. So the goal is, even if it's a small, minute task that you're given, like, how does this play? You kind of want you, you do it once and okay, the next time you're like, okay, I did this for this particular reason as part of this wider deal. And you kind of grow little by little. Cause when I started as a first year, like certain parts of a purchase agreement, I was like, even now I'm still learning. I'm like, I don't know, like what is going on here? Like first, like, I'm not going to even touch that part. <laughs> like I'm going to leave that for the partner in the mid level. And like, they're going to deal with like that kind of complicated portion. I'm just doing kind of these simple documents and you, you learn and then you kind of slowly go and you, you get bigger and more responsibility. And then, yeah. Well, it's something that I've gleaned and please correct me. So we'll hit on this and then I'll ask you my final wrap up questions is it, what struck me about transactional practice was in your junior years, you're like you said, you are creating the documents that are going to be what are used to, you know, for this transaction to occur. But as you get more senior, you also will get into the advising the clients even on how they should structure the transaction. And so I think I'm correct in that. I just want to mention that for anyone who's not familiar, like that, that I think is the overall progression of particularly like an M&A or yeah. private equity lawyer. Yeah, I think that's right. And and you're not going to, as a first year, be thrown and be like, oh, I dropped this purchase. Like, no one would expect you to do it. <laughs> yeah. But as part of this, you slowly learn and you get a bitter, you, you kind of keep pushing and you learn more. It's like, okay, I can do this. So the next step for the next deal is you get a little bit more. The leash gets longer and then you get more yep. responsibility. Yep. Then. <laughs> 
Well, and appreciating that that takes time, which I think is also the hardest part, because when you do start a new job and you don't know, it's hard to understand, like, it's going to take me years to really know versus the, like, feeling guilt that you just can't draft the purchase agreement on day one. But anyway, as we wind down, my final questions for you. One, is there anything that we haven't hit on that you wanted to share? And then after that, what's your advice to somebody who's considering a legal career or in law school or navigating one? What are your general thoughts on that? Kind of generally for law, I mean, because kind of with the path that I took to get to where I am, I wanted to go to law school and I chose to go there. And I knew not just the, the financial commitment, the time commitment, kind of the sacrifices that you made. Like I kind of recognized that from the beginning. And I think before a law student, you're kind of thinking about it, kind of making sure this is the path that you really want to go through as opposed to the, well, I guess I got nothing else to do. Maybe I'll go to law school. I mean, luckily for me, like I, that not knowing what to do, I was able to go to Peace Corps. I did grad school and it kind of went down the path. <laughs> did that path. in Zambia? You did that part in Zambia. <laughs> <laughs> of trying to figure like it, it's a commitment that you're making and it, it's like law school can be like I really liked it but it is like challenging and you have to be prepared like everyone in your class was probably the smartest top student at their undergrad when you got to understand and so it's going to be a commitment it's it's not going to be easy and so a just making sure this is kind of what what it is that you want to do before going down that path. I mean, it's okay. I mean, some people think you just kind of have to go through. I think it's okay. And I think it's actually, to be honest, like you're kind of on the other side, like seeing students who have that experience and are mature, like from the hiring side, like that's actually very good. I mean, like mm-hmm. we know, I mean, like I failed before many times and like having that has built, you're going to mess up. This is the practice of the law. You're not going to get it right. You're not going to be perfect, but being able to just kind of continue, I think that's what it is. So just making sure this is the path that you want to do as opposed to just kind of like, I guess I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah, just the default. Well, I nodded my head a lot as you said that. And with that, I'll just thank you so much for being on the show. And if listeners have questions or they want to reach out to you, is it okay if they find you on Foley's website and email you? Yes, of course. All right. Well, thank you so much, Co. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, This podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.